Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and welcome. We'll be speaking about happiness in life without money. Now let me just state at the outset, the intention here is not to suggest in any way that poverty and no money is a blessing. It's to discuss what is happiness, what is life, and what is money. And often, if you really want to get to understanding what really brings contentment, satisfaction, inner happiness, outer happiness, you have to sometimes, like in an experiment in a lab, see what life would be without certain things and see how much of a factor that is in achieving your goals. Now, knee-jerk reaction, without a question, you ask most people, they say, if I have more money, I'd be a happier person. I've asked this probably thousands of times. When you start thinking about it, you start wondering, is that really true? What, and, and if it isn't true, why, do everyone, why does everyone say that? So let's dissect this. Let's dissect the question. The question is, if you had more money, would that make you a happier person? In other words, is happiness equated with having money? As I said, most people would say yes. But let's then go the other way around. If you had no money, would that mean you would be not happy? And can you have a lot of money and be miserable? The third question I just asked, everybody would agree. Absolutely. You see it all the time. You see people are ultra-wealthy, and they're not happier at all. They're very, very unhappy people. There are people who have money and are happy. But one could argue that it has nothing to do with the money. They would have been happy without it. They'd be happy with it. So we need to obviously understand our relationship with money, which of course is complicated. But I submit this, and this is going to be the working theorem, the working, um, uh, I guess, the working algorithm of this class, of this discussion, is that Money is much more than just necessities. Everybody knows that to live in this world, you have to pay your bills. Whether it's food, drink, shelter, clothing, other necessities. But if it was just purely necessity, and that's why we're so in need of money, then it would not necessarily have all the other psychological implications, and we see that it does have. So I submit to you, I submit to me, I submit to all of us, that our relationship with money is one of the best ways to reflect on yourself as a human being. What is truly valuable? What do you see as value? And, <clears throat> and put it in other words, is your self-worth defined by your net worth? Is money a way of compensating for a lack of self-confidence? Which... Many would argue, yes, that the reason that most of us answer that money and happiness go hand in hand is because we think in our minds, if I had money, I can do whatever I want. I can purchase whatever I want. I don't have to agonize over a purchase. I don't have to feel jealous of other people. The fact of the matter is, as we shall see, that it has nothing to do with happiness. It has to do with a type of glazed, sugar-coated instant gratification that many drugs provide, whether it's um, physical drugs or emotional drugs or psychological ones, things that we look to to fill our need. And as we fill them, they don't necessarily make us happier people. We constantly need more of it. So the assumption here is this, that happiness has nothing to do with money. It's how you enter, that's how you exit, which means... If you come in as a happy person, you'll always be a happy person. That doesn't mean you won't have challenges. And if you're not a happy person, with all the money in the world, you will remain unhappy. That doesn't mean you can't distract yourself. You know, there are people who drink to simply glaze over or to numb themselves of their pain. Does that mean they're out of pain? Or it means that they have right now essentially medicated... <coughs> Excuse me. They've medicated themselves to the point where they're not feeling the pain. That's a painkiller. No one would equate that with happiness. Or certain drugs that make you happy for a moment or for a while. What we're going to be addressing 
is not just our relationship with money, but how can we actually discover a self-worth that transcends and is greater than all the money and all the materials and all possessions in existence. And again, I repeat, that does not mean it negates the blessing of wealth and the blessing that all of us should deserve and do deserve to be have the easiest and possible, possible life and to be able to not have to struggle with financial concerns and anxieties. I will submit even one more point, that when you're a happier person, you in general can be more successful also in your work and investment. And a miserable person, doesn't mean a miserable person can't make money, but a happier person creates happiness around them, an aura of happiness that is contagious and can actually help you be more successful human being. So let's go back to the core question about happiness and money. Um, so let's define happiness, of course. What's happiness? So most people define happiness in a very simplistic way. I feel right now, I feel good. That's what many people will say now. We all know that's not a really scientific answer. It's definitely not a substantial answer. Feeling good? There are many things that can make us feel good. That doesn't mean you're happy. It just means you're feeling good for the moment, as I mentioned. So some people say happy is a lasting feeling of good. There's a lasting feeling. Some people feel that since security is so important, so if I have money, and I have a lot of money, and I have all the money I need, there's a certain element of going to sleep peacefully because knowing, no matter what happens, I always have this security, like an insurance policy, so to speak. So it's not so much the actual money that I spend today or tomorrow, but it's there. It's there in the bank. It's there in my savings. It's there in my investments. But then the question is, so why is it that people build very big piggy banks? And that may be a small word, but very big, um, very big investment vehicles and uh, fortunes and still don't feel happier and still don't feel necessarily secure. The answer to that, my friends, is because the very nature of materialism is the key here. The very nature of materialism is something that is perishable, which means it's temporary. It cannot last. So if you worship something that cannot last and you put and you invest all your security in there, what do you think you're having? You're investing in something that is never going to be there permanently for you. And you'll say, I have enough money for me, my children, for grandchildren. Yeah, but money itself, it's not the question how much you have. Money itself is constantly needs to be spent and doesn't just have eternal value of its own. Moreover, and even more importantly, is the fact that no matter what we've done, no matter all the attempts made, nobody has figured out how to take their money to the next world with them. That means it only has value while you're here on this earth. So you'll say, who really cares? Once I'm not here, I don't care. Yeah, but whether it's subconsciously or it's consciously, the fact that you know that it's not something that you can forever cherish has to have an impact that right now you also know it's a temporary reality. To use the words of some of the mystics, some of the Jewish philosophers, that something that has an end, even at the beginning, it already is ending. Another way it's put is that a child, as soon as a child begins, Shanela, the child is born, it begins to already age. Now, we don't see the aging process till later. But remember, you can't be 80 if you weren't 70. You can't be 70 if you weren't 50 and 40 and 30, 20, 10. You can't be 10 years old if you weren't one year old. You can't be one year old if you don't have one day old. So it's accumulative, and it doesn't begin. The process, in other words, of a person's, I don't like the word deterioration or erosion, but a person's aging process doesn't begin later. You see it later. It becomes obvious. You feel it and so on. But it's because there's an end, so even at the beginning, it's not a permanent beginning. Eternity, on the other hand, the way they explain it, beautiful idea, is not just that it lasts forever like an infinite set of numbers, which actually infinity is also in the beginning infinite. It doesn't have a beginning. But, but just for argument's sake, let's just say it's, it, 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 it doesn't have an end. But if it has a beginning, then it also has an end ultimately, conceptually. So eternity means it's always eternal. Even when you're right now in it, it doesn't just not end, that right now you're building something that will never die. And that cannot be said about the material world, including money. So you'll say, give me an example. Love, family and children, legacies. 
the mark you make. You leave it over for your children. You can leave money over, but then money can run out by them as well. But you leave a legacy. You leave an inspiration. You touch somebody who in turn has touched others. These things don't go away. They never die. Sir Moses Montefiore put it so eloquently when Queen Victoria asked him once. They were close. and Sir Moses was a big philanthropist and a wealthy man. And she said, Sir Moses, what is your net worth? What are you worth? What's your value financially? I'll get back to you, he said. He went to his accountants. He came back with a number, whatever number he said. And the queen said to him, Sir Moses, you mock me. I personally know you have holdings far beyond the number you just told me. She says, no, I don't mock you. I told you the truth. The money you know I have is money that is perishable. It could all... It could go bad in a bad investment. It could be stolen, war, other ways that it could be lost. The money that I actually have is the money I've given away to charity. The institutions, the organizations, the people that live on due to that money, that nobody can ever take away. Because I built something eternal. That's an insight. That's an insight. And she, of course, appreciated it. But we live in a reality, and we'll soon discuss how, why, how bizarre and uh, even insane this is, a reality that if we see something right now that looks powerful, we forget about the future, the past, we grab it. That's called instant gratification. It calls, it's called being affected by your sensory tools that are stimulating some type of serotonin or whatever you want to call it, that causes you to feel the pleasure of the moment. And you'll ask people, if I give you now $10,000, or I'll give you $100,000 over 10 years, or and that's not good, that's 10000 a year. I'll give you $100,000 over 20 years. Most people go for the 10000 now. People think about the now. Now, of course, a discipline and so on person will say no. Obviously, it's more money. But then you start thinking what kinds of excuses, inflation, or what will happen, and so on. Because that's the nature of the human being. The question is why? Intelligent beings or intelligent people, why? Because there's a certain blindness to this reality. Where materialism, if it's loud and sizzling and glittering and glamorous, it seduces us into thinking that that's the most important thing at the moment. And in the words of the Talmud, that people prefer temporary life over permanent life. Could permanent just say, I don't know what's going to happen. It's later. Let me just live it right now. I'll worry about it tomorrow. How many of us have this attitude? Very often. We all have it to some extent. Some have it in a completely hedonistic and indulgent way. And some people have it in a more minimal way. Where is it rooted from the mystical point of view? It's rooted in the big symptom that you've heard me speak about many times. That there's a fundamental concealment of the inner truths and the transcendent unity that lies embedded beneath the surface of all existence. So it's hidden. That eternal energy is hidden. So what we see is what we get. We see what you, what you get. Is what, what you see is what you get in your mind. So I see something. It looks good. I grab it. How many of us have been hoodwinked, conned into purchasing something because it looked good? The package was good. The presentation was good. The whole thing was not any valuable. How could we be fooled? Because manipulating, our emotions get manipulated. We feel, oh, this is an opportunity of a lifetime, and we forget everything else, and then later we regret, we think back, we reflect. Why do we have such a personality? Because there is a fundamental blindness. The material existence conceals the eternal forces that lie beneath the surface. Like the, it's just like the bed of an ocean, not the bed, the surface of an ocean conceals that which is beneath the surface. And that is why you can put poison in a sugar-coated pill and people will not know. The outer and the inner are not are dissonant. Now, if you think about it, logically it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> an outer should reflect an inner. Think of a peel of a fruit. The peel is a peel protecting the fruit. However, if we're blinded for the moment, what happens is we think the peel, because we can see it, is more significant than the fruit even though your mind may tell you otherwise, but impulsively, that's the way we react. And the reason is because there is a fundamental concealment that we do not see 
the underlying eternal energy, and we also do not see the underlying unity. What we see are pieces. If someone asks you, look around, you'll say, oh, here's a sky, here's an earth, here's birds, here's a tree, here's grass, here's a room, here's a house, table, chairs, and so on. So when we look at it, someone will say, what is all that? You'll say, it's a bunch of pieces. And how many pieces is this world made of? Billions, trillions. Is there anything cohesive about it? Then you start saying, one second, doesn't it work? Doesn't nature work in this fascinating design, coordination, synchronization, harmony? However, ostensibly, it all looks like separate pieces. Then you realize it's really a narrative, pieces of a larger story. And that's essentially when you get beyond the concealment and you get to a state of revelation. And basically, all of science is based on that. Connecting, understanding different diverse phenomena with certain basic rules that explain it all. We're still searching for the unified field theory, but much of the world is understood with certain basic principles. Still complex, and there's still plus diversity, but there's an underlying unity, just like there's an underlying infinity. William Blake put it this way, he says, when you cleanse the doors of perception, you see everything as it really is, infinite. So this is a feeling, a sentiment, a concept that has been known by scholars, by mystics especially, from the beginning of time. And it's really the essence of all of mysticism, including Jewish mysticism, which may be even an oxymoron because mysticism is mysticism, Kabbalah, Hasidic thought, contemporary Kabbalah, to teach us to seek out and to look for that underlying unity. Now, what does money fit into this? Money is the epitome of materialism. Number one, it reflects our ingenuity, our efforts, our time. Everything we value about ourselves is when you pay me for it, that money captures all of it. In the words of the Tanya, chapter 37, Chaya Nafshe, it's like the soul energy. It's your soul. Number two, money, you can purchase things. You can purchase people. You can purchase their time, their loyalty. They often will even do bid your will, even if it's not necessarily ethical. So the second thing money creates is this illusion of power. And the third thing is, on the end of purchasing, you, you can buy anything, objects. You can fill your house with whatever you want, whatever you desire. So if you think about it, if the physical reality of existence is a distortion on its own, without understanding the soul within, the underlying infinity, the underlying eternity, the underlying unity, money personifies it in the fullest sense of the word. It's, the re-unc- it's materialism reincarnate. Matter reincarnate in the fullest sense of the word. That is why it is so hard to give charity. That's why it's so hard to separate yourself from it because for you it captures, for each one of us it captures our connection to this material world. Now, is it true that you can buy things? Yes, you can. But it has nothing to do with the true values and true happiness because it has nothing to do with true eternity. So what I submit here is that happiness is always something that's eternal, real happiness. We're not talking about the sugar-coated version. We're not talking about feeling good, even for a while, because that does not last. And we know it. And you can even argue that the verse says, Ayyav Kesav, someone who loves money will never be sated by money. Someone who worships materialism will never be satisfied. Someone who worships things that are temporary can never be satisfied. So indeed, the pursuit itself causes us to continue to pursue it. And no matter how much you'll have, you'll always say, I need more. Even though on paper, you, could, you have all, the, all that you need to spend, you'll still see people, no, they don't just part with it. You know, of course, you can make the argument, who knows for a rainy day what will happen. But there's something about the attachment. And that is why, I've heard this from a number of hedge fund managers and people who, who manage private wealth. I really heard this, even though it's a shocking statement, that the wealthier they are, the more miserable they are. I still argue that because I don't think it's across the board, it cannot be absolute that way. But I understand the reason. Because money becomes the driving force of your life. Even if you don't speak about it, you go into a room, you feel superior because I have that. You know you can sit in business class, you can fly a private plane, you can do so many other things. Many people don't even flaunt it because they don't want anybody to know. Some do. But that's not relevant here. In your heart, you flaunt it to yourself. It makes you feel, 
I have what someone else doesn't have. Does that make you a happier person? Yes, it gives a sense of certain um, security, as I said, financial security, contentment. But if that is really what makes you happy, then it is ultimate temporary drug of the, of the most powerful nature because it's not addictive in the physical sense. It's not going to destroy your brain cells. Uh, well, you know, I should maybe question a second, second. Uh, I should maybe uh, retract that because it could. But I mean to say in a direct way, like a heavy drug or alcohol. And yet, dependency is what defines addiction. That a crutch, you can't live without it. I always wondered as a child, how is it possible after the stock market crash that people literally committed suicide, jumped off of rooftops? It's only money. But then you start reading that money was their, their reputation. They couldn't face others. They couldn't face themselves. They couldn't face the villain because everything was defined. So I say to myself, what kind of tortured soul? I wish they didn't jump. So when they had the money, did they really have happiness? If it taken away, you're ready to say it's the end? That means they don't feel other value but that? You tell me. I think even people like that sitting with them, they would not say, I'm not necessarily feel that good about it, but I'm attached to it. And yes, it starts connecting to reputation, to your status, to how people see you. Which leads me to the next step of this discussion is value. We all want to be valued. We all want to feel worthy. We all feel worthiness. So how do we, where do we find this value? Where do we find this value? So one of the ways is that people value you, you feel valuable. They see they value your intelligence, they value your um, status, they value your wealth, they value the things you've own, you own, you possess. So then you feel valued. You know that people respect you. But think about it a moment what that means. That means if you didn't have all these things, the value would go down. There you go. Another example of temporary value. So right now it looks very powerful. It looks even, it seems like it will never end the party. But think about it as I said. Even while you have it, you don't really have it because it's not coming from within. Take away one of those reasons of value and then your stocks go down. Let's talk about another form of value, value that comes from within. Value that comes from within means you are a valuable person because you have what to give. Because you have something unique to contribute. And you know that whether you have the money, you don't have the money, whether even if other people value it, you don't value you, you know you have that from within. And you generate it from within. Now obviously we all need affirmation and validation, not denying that. But it's not driven strictly by validation and affirmation of others. That's a support. It's driven because you are that way. One of my favorite lines that I use in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, and I've used it in many classes and uh, workshops, and is birth is God saying you matter. The mere fact that you exist, that you are here on this earth, with your unique skills, with your, your unique identity, not as a clone or a copy of someone else, that makes, means you matter. It makes no, no difference how wealthy you are, how not wealthy you are, what others even think about you. Now, I want to state this again. This doesn't mean we're not affected what others think, because as I said, the whole discussion here began with that. We are very affected by that. But at least the first step of this so-called meditation or thought at least recognize that. At least recognize that you are valuing yourself based on superficial and external criteria instead of internal ones. So the work here is, the more you can recognize yourself and your inner value, the, the less dependent you will be on this drug called money or materialism or other things that other people value in you. And I reiterate again, this doesn't mean that there isn't value in that, but that cannot be the definition of your inner value. Your net worth is not, not define your self-worth. Your self-worth defines your self-worth. And we each have that. And go, let me go back to the eternal principles. Even though it's sad to say this, but I've talked to a person who was once, uh, well, who was an extremely wealthy person in the billions, estranged from his own children. And he wanted that connection. And I, you know, we used to talk. And I said to him, what would you pay to get that connection? Everything. 
I said, before you talk so quickly, let's see. And you look at the history, money was actually the force that separated them. He used money to control, he used money to reward, and he used money to punish. And his daughter, who I did meet, told me that. She says, I'd rather not have this money. I don't know, as much as I think positively of every person, whether this person was ready to give up his money for his children. He definitely ignored them as he was making it. I don't want to judge, but I have a sense that he may not, because once you get connected to the drug, you say, why can't I have both? You have a distortion. However, there are many people who will say, that when I'm 70, 80, 90 years old, when I look back, what I regret most is not that I didn't make another 100,000, 100 million, or 100,000, I'm using small numbers here, I'm going to regret that I didn't have more time with my family, that I didn't do the things that I believed in, I didn't show enough love. That's what many people would say. Unfortunately, the most people that say that are often people who have not made that much money, because money does tend to blind us. Famous analogy, that when you spread silver on the back of a pane of glass, what do you see? You stop seeing others, you only see yourself. That's the tendency. It becomes a self-validating type of ego. Say, look at me. Look how much I've made. Look how much what I can do. Those people can't do that. Now, I'm not suggesting everyone's that way because there is redemption through humility. But for that, you need to have and recognize that your wealth is not yours. It comes from a higher place. More on that shortly. So what happens is the pane of glass, which through which was transparent, you could see others, you could see people, has now become a mirror that just reflects you back. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Focused on self. So money tends to become a, a uh, what's the word I want to use? A, uh, a feeder of ego. It feeds it. It reinforces it. It makes it stronger and greater. Except, one exception is if you know how to redeem it through humility, through charity, through recognizing it's not your wealth. As I said, I'll get to that shortly. So all above is what is the story is that maybe it's time to start looking at who we are through the prism of money. You know, start asking yourself how much, how much attachment do you have to it? How obsessive are you? Now, it's not an easy question to answer. Most people would like to say, not really. It's not true. It is one of the most obsessive and secretive and aspire to things in existence, maybe more than anything else. Because with money, you can buy other things in your mind. Not love, but you can think you could. You think you can, the delusion of it. So that's why it's such a powerful force. Whether you have it or you don't have it. When you don't have it, you want it. When you have it, you want more. And at the end of the day, without a check and balance of understanding its deeper purpose, it becomes a force that's stronger than us. And that is, my friends, a categorization of an addiction. Addiction means that you are dependent on it, not it, it controls you, you don't control it. Now, I'm not suggesting just giving a talk like this for 10 minutes, for a half hour, for an hour, it's going to change everybody's attitude. I'm not that naive. My goal here is not to change attitude, it's to just food for thought, to start thinking about this topic a little more honestly, a little more candidly. And only you, can know, be, only you can know how honest you are with yourself. Some people don't want to hear all this. They say, I'm too busy, i got to make more money. You know, that's where you are in life, that's where you are. But I can tell you right now, the pursuit of the temporary always compromises the pursuit of the eternal. You really can't do both. And those that do pursue the eternal are focused on it and see it as a priority. That doesn't mean they can't have other time for other things, but it's always secondary because... Nothing can replace eternity. And that cannot be purchased and bought. So it's food for thought. Begin thinking. Wherever you are in your life, I assure you that if you think about it, a little introspection, a little accountability, a little examination, evaluation of your life, you'll start seeing, look at this drug. Now it's a hard one because drugs, as I say, if someone's smoking pot or alcohol or other types of uh, drug or alcohol or uh, other dependencies and addictions, it's easier to define. Here's a substance, and here's what it's doing to me. Even there, there's plenty of denial. But here, you'll say, where's the drug? What's it doing to me? Money doesn't hurt anybody. 
it's much more subtle. It depends what you're valuing. What do you see? What's important to you? And that's why you find people's comp- friendships, relationships, marriages often fall apart or are compromised due to financial reasons. How could that be? How could a financial factor compromise a relationship between spouses, between parents and children, between friends, between brothers, between sisters? How could it be possible? They're not in the same world. This is forever. This is so much part of who you are. And this is something that comes and goes. I go back to before, don't underestimate the power, the influence, and the force it exerts on us. It exerts on us. It wields tremendous power. And precisely because we underestimate it, we don't realize how attached we are to the moment, to the temporary, to the things that right now seem to be you can buy. I remember the, the ad, it's a funny ad, but it, it captures it. It was a Citibank ad for miles, Citibank card, city card, a credit card. You get miles. So the ad's like this. A woman's receiving a bouquet of flowers from her boyfriend, from her husband, and she thinks to herself, was it love or was it the miles? You get the idea. The miles could be the incentive. And it's tongue-in-cheek, but it has a truth to it. And someone could say, why can't it be both? Okay, fine. But the question is, sometimes it's not both. And the, so the point here is to get you thinking and to get us at least a more honest place in our relationships. Because as I said at the outset, it's a litmus test. Money is a litmus test. It's a great way of measuring your attachment to your finance and therefore your lack of attachment to things that are more permanent, more eternal, and more infinite, and more valuable. Now let's go to the other side of the coin. In that chapter 37 I mentioned from the Tanya, he says something very powerful. It's true that money reflects our strength, our ingenuity, our time, our soul energy. That's why it's very hard to part from, with it, because it's like our flesh and blood. On the other hand, that's why charity is such a powerful mitzvah. Because what it's doing is, it's taking your sense of self, your ego, and as it's fueled by your finance and your, phys- and your material status, and you know what you're doing? You're reversing the arrow. You're releasing the air, the inflated air, and directing it toward good causes, helping a person, helping a, a, a cause, helping a needy, building an organization, building a, a something that helps mankind. So you've taken a thing that is so self-oriented, and you've released its energy, and that's why it has so much power. Because what it's done is it frees you from yourself. It frees you from that self-contained self that you see, the smugness, the arrogance even, that you see many wealthy people have. Only hang around with the, 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 their same, the same ilk. It releases that because you become now a giver. It's not holding you hostage. You are controlling your money, not your money is controlling you. That's why it's so powerful. So, in Jewish thought, wealth is not considered a curse. Wealth is not considered something we reject. It's a blessing. And that's why the Talmud says that when the great sages, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbi Rebbe, who's called the author of the Mishnah, meaning the author as the one that documented it, we used to honor the wealthy. Now you read something like that, you say, one second here. That's everything I hate about religion. When I go to the synagogue or I go to my temple or wherever it is, my house of worship. And the people who are wealthy are the ones that are honored. What's going on? Honor the, the pure spirits, the good hearts, the souls, the people praying to God, pious people. And yet the Talmud doesn't hesitate to make these controversial statements because it understands and expects us to dig deeper. Why did he honor the wealthy? Because Rabbi Yenakosh cared about the money. He was for sale. One of the greatest sages in history. Man of God. The answer is because he saw that God blesses someone with anything, whether it's physical wealth, whether it's a wealth of wisdom, intelligence, or other strengths, you honor them because you're honoring God who blessed and said, God felt, gave a vote of confidence that this person gave him extra money, knowing and confident that he will use it right, not to hoard it, but to give it. 
And this takes us to a favorite powerful medrash. The medrash is one of the oral interpretations that talks about King David having a dialogue with God and saying to God, it's maybe the first challenge of social hierarchy. So King David says to God, you have all the gold and silver in the universe and beyond. Why do you create the wealthy and the poor? Why create classes? Why not distribute it equally? And God responds, because then who would do chesed? Who would do kindness in this world if everybody was content? By giving, If you take this a step further, it means... I bless some with more, not because I want them to have more, because I, I trust they will have the humility and the wisdom to understand it's a, it's a, it's a loan that I'm giving them. Or more importantly, I'm giving them the, the power of attorney, of my money, God is saying, that they can then wisely distribute it where it should be distributed, and then we'll have not just equal distribution of wealth, but also chesed, the kindness, that we become givers, we become creators, we become initiators, not just receivers. That was the answer. So when a person who's blessed with wealth, may they use it well, also has to understand, and that's why Rebbe honored them, that they have more opportunity. Because there is soul energy in that money. There are sparks. They're just deeply embedded, using the Kabbalistic analogy of the broken shards of the world of toyu, of chaos. It's, a, it's an analogy. Think of a, a powerful, powerful narrative. And then someone comes and tears up the book and, and scatters the pieces. That's this world. I mentioned before, it's all scattered, and we don't see the narrative. We don't see the underlying eternity or the underlying unity. We see pieces, pieces. But someone who's been given a lot of these pieces is entrusted, and there's the confidence that that person will be wise and understand it was given to me because I was given also the wisdom to know what to do with it and make the world a better place, not to hoard the money. And that's how you redeem that materialistic self-focus, that myopic, narcissistic energy that's released and reinforced through money, the silver on the back of the glass that just makes you see yourself all the time. Now, seeing yourself, you can stand in the mirror and see yourself. You could also see yourself even when you're not standing in the mirror. Wherever you go, it's all about me, 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 me. You could put on a show. And we all have elements for times of benevolence. But overall, it's me. And this giving, this charity, is what, in a sense, reverses that because it releases and says, no, it's not me, me, me. It's about a gift given to you to distribute and share with others. And that will also makes a person a happy person. The person who's always looking over their shoulder, when is somebody going to come and recognize that I have money and they're going to come some, want something from me and I, don't, I can't trust the conversation? As I've heard from people who became wealthy in their lives, they say, I don't have any friends because I don't know if they're my friend or they want something from me. And they live their lives looking over their shoulders, second-guessing every relationship <clears throat> because of this issue. And do they, are they truly happy? They can put on a show, but it's hard to be happy. However, if they direct their own finance towards spiritual ends and they direct it toward building something, then you are controlling it. There's no longer controlling you. That changes the whole equation. So my friends, happiness and money are not on the same line. Happiness is a state of being, of self-worth, that's generated by the fact that you matter, period. Wealth is a tool chest. It's an arsenal. Now that you matter, work hard, God blesses you, you have now wealth, but, it's driven, but, you, but your worth was not dependent on that. That's not how you define your value. If you enter that way, then the wealth you'll use the proper way. If, however, the pursuit of wealth, or the acquisition of wealth, or the inheritance of wealth, is in place of that self-worth, coming from within, that you matter, and you have a mission and purpose in life, then that becomes the replacement, and that temporary force controls the rest of your life really comes down to those stark different differences. Now, of course, there's variations to the extent, but again, this is meant to shift wherever we are. My goal here is to just shift the thinking, to move a little away from the self-oriented to the greater-oriented. Instead of the egocentric to the God-centric, 
or maybe purpose-centric life instead of self-centric. So when you think of it that way, what happens is you could literally shift your life day by day by day because you start looking at yourself in a new way. I don't want to say looking in the mirror because of what I said earlier, but start looking at yourself in a new way because you have a new standard. You have a new way to look at things. Now, of course, if you've not tasted eternity, if you've not tasted love, if you've not tasted truth, soul, God, and so on in a healthy way, then what else? All you have are the, is the candy store that came your way. All you have are the little things that spoil you, the toys and gadgets, and whether it's in the form of money or in the form of toys, adult toys, that uh, I meant in that sense, not the toys, but still toys for adults, that basically are replacing something that has far more permanent value. Where do you begin? You begin by evaluating yourself. You begin by looking, making a list. Make a list of the eternal things going on in your life. If you're married and have children and family, that's right there on top of the list. If you're committed to certain values, you're committed to certain types of giving, charity, or other volunteer, or other types of it, that goes on that side of the list. And then the other column is the self-oriented things. So start evaluating. You want to start populating list number one. The more you do, the more it weakens the hold of the temporary. Really what it comes down to. It's hard to do because we're addicted to our patterns and habits as well. Remember, addiction isn't always to a thing. It could also become an addiction. Once you've done it so many times, it just becomes by rote, which is very difficult to break. But it's possible. Just like you got into it, you can get out of it. That's step one. Secondly, introduce yourself to the eternal things. Studying spiritual things. Having conversations with a mentor or with a friend about eternal values. Introducing yourself, be, be, introducing yourself, be exposed to it. The more you're exposed, the more it builds your appetite for it. And then you start seeing the contrast as well. It's always that way. If someone gives you a toy or a candy and you love it, you'll keep loving it until someone gives you a better toy. Or something that's not a toy that says, hey, do this. You say, oh, wow. Now, there's always going to be moments we want instant gratification and procrastination and the myopic view of things. Don't beat yourself up if that's where you fall back to. But the key thing is to open up the horizons, to broaden the horizons, and introduce some of the more eternal. Step by step by step. It doesn't have to be done overnight, not cold turkey. Step by step by step. And yes, happiness. Um, Who is it that said it? I'm trying to remember. Um, No, it wasn't... um, it wasn't William James. I think it was. Okay. We said that happiness is only achieved not by, by not pursuing it. Those that pursue happiness, I'm going to buy a book, a best-selling book, How to Get Happiness. I'm going to purchase this because they tell me I'll be happy if I do this. That's not how it works. Happiness is the outgrowth that emerges through doing certain things by giving by recognizing your inner value, by contributing, by shining, then happiness emerges from that. There's some things you can acquire. You can acquire a a loaf of bread, a bottle of milk, other things. You cannot acquire happiness. It comes, it's like the, I want to say the reward, it's like the fruit of labor. You plant the seeds, the tree that grows out of it, that blossoms, is going to be happiness. But, we replace that with happiness we can acquire. I'm going to do this, I'll be happy. I'll do that, I'll have pleasure. I'll buy this, I'll make money. Going back to our initial points. Happiness is the outgrowth of doing things that feed your inner self. Then what happens is that the money too becomes an instrument, an extension of that inner self, an extension of that mission, and you actually can even have pleasure of giving. There are people who actually have pleasure to give because they realize what this gift is. Just like teachers have pleasure to teach because they recognize that they were blessed with this, to be a channel of this wisdom. And the same thing with everyone who contributes whatever they contribute in life. Obviously, this does not exhaust the topic. There's so much more to say. But I think enough is said here to get the ball rolling, as we say. They said to plant the seeds, to think about it. 
Sometimes you just need to be in the right place in life to hear this. Sometimes it's hard to hear this because if you're in the merry-go-round or the roller coaster of life and running at 90 miles an hour, it's very hard to stop and listen. So I know what I, sometimes I share ideas like this and then I hear later, years later from someone, I heard it at the time but I was too busy or distracted. Then I heard it, now it was necessary for me to hear. So my, I feel that my mission is to get it out there. What effects it has, it can be immediate, it can be longer term, it's planting seeds. And I think it's also something important to mention. And that actually, is, is, for me, gives me very deep inner satisfaction. I may never know what seeds it's, what the seeds yield, but knowing that you're planting seeds, and then from time to time, you're blessed to see some of the fruit of your labor. So I wish it upon all of us. And this is something money cannot buy. With money, you can do more. You can reach more. But money will not replace this fundamental mission that each of us has and will not really fill the void, the vacuum, for that deeper happiness that we all are seeking. That always will come with eternity because eternity is true security. I always found it ironic they call it securities. Yes, it's security, the temporary security, but not real full-time and forever. So all this, we have the choice in every, everything we do. Next time you... Think about the money you make, and I'm sure we think about it quite often. Next time you go online, you look at your net worth. Stop and say, you know, there's limits to what this material force can do. And there are things that are not purchasable, but bring true happiness. You know, true happiness, sitting with your child, with your grandchild, spending time. It's inestimable. It's, not, it's uh, priceless. No price that you can put on it. Say, how much is it worth? They tell this story, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a good story about a very wealthy man who really had no time for his family. His son, so so desperate, so thirsty for some attention, but his father's always busy, busy, busy. One day, as he gets a little older, you know, he realizes his father's making money, he's a busy man, and he sees... What, that, that people who get into his father are people who are business deals and so on. So he decides he has a plan. Calls up his father one day in the office. His father, of course, is all upset. Why you call me in my office? We'll speak later. No, it's dad, it's important. I want to know what you make, what's your hour worth? How much do you make an hour? What kind of question is that? What kind of question? If son is persistent, so the father blurts out some, some number. Tens of thousands of dollars an hour based on his... One day, at night, he comes to his bed, the, the father, and he sees by his pillow a little envelope. Looks at the envelope. It's in his son's handwriting. It's, he opens the envelope. It's a collection of small cash and coins, maybe adding up to $35.42. With a little note that says, Dad... This is what I was able to muster and get together, $35.42. How much time does that give me with you? He's paying him for his time. I think the message is quite clear. I hope the end of the story is that the father realized, and not just didn't take the money, but realized that's not how you measure this. There are things you measure when it comes to the means of this world, but not the ends, not the higher goals. And yet, even though we hear this story, all of us can fall into this trap one way or another. We say we may not, but we do because, as I said, the big tzimtzum has done its work very effectively. It's concealed. It's concealed the deeper truths, the underlying unity, the eternity that lies embedded within. It's hidden, but it's there for the taking. And when you find love, healthy love, and when you find truth, and when you find spiritual values, and when you give, and when you do things that allow your soul to shine and illuminate with its unique voice, its unique song, you recognize suddenly, here's eternity. And this is temporary. The blindness continues, but you have then a little edge. You can begin to shift, as I said. And that's what we're looking for, the shift. We're not looking for a full transformation. If that happens, I'd be surprised. I'm also wary. Better to do it step by step. So I hope I did some justice to this 
challenging topic, and this is a challenging topic, because it's a relationship with money and how it reflects on us and what we consider to be valuable. And you'll see it goes hand in hand with your own self-confidence, self-worth, inner sense of value, and inner sense of, 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 um, of confidence and security. To recognize what you really like. And when you do, you realize that money is a tool, like anything. It allows you to do things. But do you ever say that my car is, replaces my identity? Or for that matter, my house or all my possessions? No, my identity is beyond them all. My identity defines what I have, not what I have defines my identity. The more you come to realize that, that truth, you will have true happiness. Because it's a happiness that's 24-7, and it makes no difference what happens that day. Whether you lose a little money or make a little money, whether something's working your way or not, that is unwavering. It's unshakable. Because it's a foundational truth that's there forever. It's eternal. Eternal not only at the end, but also in the beginning. So there we have a uh, take on a life. What the topic is happiness in life without money. To make the point, not we should all be blessed with money, but what happiness truly is. If you have any questions, comments, anything, please feel free to write to us. Please share this, like it, share it on social media, and help us spread the word. It's a ripple effect. That's the key. We are all flames that can light another flame ad infinity. And then all the flames get stronger. That's how I like to see my life, the purpose of the Meaningful Life Center. So please join us in this mission every way possible. It's an honor to share a few words. We're here. This program, of course, is archived, and uh, you can download it as a podcast anytime, anywhere. Um, and uh, I look forward to continue the journey with you. Be well.